0: Mean old Lion Media presents Corner Table Talk. Hello, everybody. This is Corner Table Talk. I'm your host, Brad Johnson. Here, we explore subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. And as always, with questions or comments, you can reach me at Brad at Post and Beam Innovative, progressive, and shamelessly revolutionary, Aquarius is represented by the water bearer the mystical healer who bestows water or life upon the land. Accordingly, Aquarius is the most humanitarian astrological sign. At the end of the day, Aquarius is dedicated to making the world a better place. As I was working on the podcast for today, I came across the description of people born under the astrological sign Aquarius. And there it was, a succinct, description of my next guest, whose birth sign also happens to be Aquarius. Susan Taylor is an editor, writer, journalist, and highly sought-after speaker. Perhaps best known as the editor-in-chief of Essence magazine, Susan became the face and spirit that gave Essence its identity. According to its founders, Essence was intended as, quote, a lifestyle magazine directed at upscale African-American women, end quote, which was a, a novel idea in 1970. In Susan's role as editor-in-chief, her style, beauty, grace, and steady self-assured voice guided multiple generations of African-American women and men, yours truly included. Glamorous and accessible, eloquent, and relatable, with a unique flow that resonates in back rooms and boardrooms. If you've ever heard Susan speak, as you will today, you'll know exactly what I mean. Susan served as editor-in-chief of Essence from 1981 through 2000. In addition to her editing responsibilities, Susan was instrumental in building the Essence brand to over 8 million readers. Her monthly inspirational column, In the Spirit, became an extremely popular feature of the magazine, and she has published three volumes of selected columns. Susan is the best-selling author of four books and has edited eight others. Ms. Taylor is also the recipient of more than a dozen honorary doctorates and hundreds of awards, including the Phoenix Award, which is the highest honor given by the Congressional Black Caucus. She is an inductee into the American Society of Magazine Editors Hall of Fame. In 1994, American libraries referred to Susan Taylor as, quote, the most influential Black woman in journalism. Most recently, she is the founder and CEO of National Cares Mentoring Movement, a pioneering community mobilization initiative that directly addresses the life-shredding effects of intergenerational Black poverty, laying a blueprint for community recovery. Susan is the wife of writer Kefer Burns and mom to daughter Shauna, who is married to my longtime friend, NBA Hall of Famer Bernard King, and they have a lovely daughter, which is Susan's granddaughter, Amina. I am so happy to welcome to Corner Table Talk, my spiritual mom, Susan Taylor. Hey, Susan.
1: I am so honored to be with you and just amazed by you. We have to let people know that you were just a little teenager when I met you. I was probably taller (laughs) than you. The person that you were about, we were saying 15 or 16?
0: Yeah, yeah, right around there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm really honored to have you. Thank you for taking the time. I know you're crazy busy and there's a lot of demands on you as always. So I I do appreciate that you said yes today and agreed to join us. So we'll jump in, Susan. We'll start with what I call our short order questions. It's a few simple questions to get us rolling here. So tell me, what is in heavy rotation on your playlist these days? What what music are you listening to?
1: (laughs) I love Alicia Keys' new music came out around the holiday time you know it's mm-hmm. just a, a a melding of what is new and fresh and what is traditional to us to jazz and we get to hear her really riff on the piano and she's just brilliant so i'm enjoying that tremendously and you know i'm, I'm old school way old school i still listen to nancy wilson i just love nancy wilson and she's probably my favorite singer in the whole wide world. And a lot of the jazz great singers, Johnny Hartman. I love mm. that beautiful, mellow voice. I love Sarah Vaughn too. And, you know, it took me a while to appreciate Billie Holiday. I was way mature before I really understood, you know, where she was singing from and what she was really communicating through that raspy, sad but determined and exquisite voice. So those are some of the things I'm listening to. When I'm writing, though, I can't have music in my ear, so it's usually classical music or something easy in the background.
0: Yeah, I'm, like, I'm that way too when I'm reading something that I need to focus on or writing it, a solo piano or something classical, but I, I can't have lyrics.
1: Same for me, you know, yeah. and just I don't have those moments. I don't have enough of those moments. Do you when mm-hmm. there is just, I can just sit you know, and just maybe read the paper. I can just sit and not have to do something, but that's what I'm That's what I'm moving toward. Yeah,
0: my Sunday New York Times becomes my Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. By the time I finally get to it, it's like, you know, what's the point? It's old news, but uh, <laughs> that's our lives. So tell me, Susan, what, what's your morning routine? How do you start
2: your day?
1: You know, I'm an early riser and I'm trying to stay in bed a little longer. There's an amazing book that I'm reading, Why We Sleep. And it's really underscoring the importance of getting between seven and maybe even nine hours of sleep. And I don't think I've ever slept nine hours, maybe not since I was a baby, you know, but I um, am up, I'm up by 435 o'clock, but trying at this stage in age, not to leap out of bed and into the world, because in the morning, that meditation time, that quiet time when I'm just with me, with Holy Spirit, that's the most important time of my day. And then I get up and I usually take a shower. Um, I would go to yoga when the yoga studio was open. It's not now. And then, you know, just get on with the day. I love getting to the computer early. And when most people are beginning work, I've already completed a good quarter of the work that I need to do.
0: Are you one of those folks who have... um discipline themselves to have their mobile device in another room so that you're not reaching for the phone at 2 a.m. Or, or is the phone right next to you at all times?
1: You know, I put it in the drawer because I, <laughs> I need some instruction on this phone. because sometimes I turn it <laughs> off, but it turns itself on automatically. I don't know what that is. Something that somebody probably knows how to do to get my attention. But I don't when I put it down at night, I'm done. Unless I have an idea, you know, at around midnight that I may pick it up. But no, I'm not interrupted by phone.
0: Good for you. Favorite weekend breakfast, assuming that might be when you splurge a little bit. What what might you have?
1: When I can make it uptown to Melba's, that would be good. Some catfish <laughs> and grits and cornbread. Yeah, that would be a favorite.
0: Yeah, I'm down with you there. How about the best live musical performance that you've ever seen?
1: You know, I don't know that a group ever moved me as much as the Spinners, you know. Philippe, I remember Shauna, you know, my daughter was probably eight years old. And here we are at Madison Square Garden, the theater at Madison Square Garden. And Philippe is just prancing across that stage and he's tearing it up. And I just loved that man's voice and mm. what he did with with lyrics mm. and, and melodies. And that was amazing. But I have to say also a Teddy Pendergrass concert. Teddy Pendergrass wasn't a, a, that at that time a favorite and a friend of mine, she had to see him, and I got tickets, and we went to Lincoln Center. I've never seen anything like that in my life. Teddy Pendergrass just had on a pair of, like, hip-hugging, maybe bell-bottom pants, a white silk shirt, and he pranced across that stage. He was sweating. The the the, the, the shirt was clinging to him. And it was just the most... Ma- just so beautiful. And I remember going back to the office the next day and saying to the then editor-in-chief, Marsha Ann Gillespie, we have to put him on the cover. And we did. And he became, that became the, the greatest selling, the largest selling cover of Essence magazine up to that time.
0: Wow. Was he the first man to grace the cover or were there other men before him?
1: There were men before him. That's a good question. Yes, there were men before him, but not Not celebrity men. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell Mm -hmm. you, what outsold him, too, was years later when we put Malcolm X on the cover. You know, and folks didn't really understand why I was doing that. And it Mm -hmm. was, um, I wanted to interview Dr. Betty, Dr. Betty Shabazz, about her life with Malcolm because we hadn't heard much of her voice and -hmm. what that relationship was like. I wanted to get into their business. I wanted to know how she loved him. And it was just an extraordinary interview. And I think the very first... Color image of Malcolm X that many people had ever seen, and it was a huge seller. Again, that became the largest selling issue of Essence wow. up to that point. Well,
0: you know, as I, as I alluded to, Susan, you know, as a, as a man, I looked forward to to Essence for the stories, for the content, for the to to see who was in there, see what models were. You all were focused on it was it was quite an experience to to turn the pages of Essence.
1: You know, Essence gave. Black women, a stage that wasn't available to us before. We had Ebony Magazine, and Ebony is always, you know, that's the grandfather grandmother of magazines, black magazines, but they didn't do really fashion pages and beauty pages, but we got to see all the celebrities, so that was phenomenal. I still miss, as our folk call it, the jet. You know, I miss jet. It was like the weekly catch-up. But Essence provided many things for black women, a stage that, you know, could display... The breath of our beauty, from sisters who were, you know, as black as my my shirt, to sisters who were, you know, light skin with green mm-hmm. eyes. We, I mean, just the breath of black beauty was on display, and and it also gave black women a voice, a voice that we didn't have, and the ability to really speak to one another and to put our issues on the really make them front and center.
0: Mm-hmm. Essence. Was- I want to come back to that a little bit because you know, as as beauty evolved, Essence led the way to a certain extent. And, and you being, you know, the, the the focal point at the magazine, I think had a, you know, a, a huge impact on that. But I want to I want to come back to that. So I know you've been around the world, you've been to many places, but is there anywhere that is high on your list of places to go you haven't been?
1: You know, I almost wanted to go to Egypt. And I didn't think I was going to make that trip because Asa Hilliard, who was leading trips to e- Egypt, passed away before I could travel with him. And then, as the mm. Holy Spirit would have it, Alicia Keys invited me to, and I did, never even talk about this, to go to Egypt with her and her family. And my husband, Kefra, and I, we did that. And so I, I'm i good. I have seen most of what I've wanted to see, some places I'd love to go back to. But going to Egypt was really, really important to me. Have you been to Egypt?
0: I haven't been to Egypt. And I'm afraid, I'm afraid now if I do, it won't be with Alicia Keys. So yeah. it's going to be... <laughs> I have to pick somebody else and go somewhere else. So um, complete this sentence for me. I had little patience for.
1: Brilliance, which sometimes takes time to emerge from people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because I didn't come to my role with all the skills that people thought I should have. It's made me very compassionate and Mm -hmm. supportive and patient with others.
0: How about a favorite date place for you in Kefra? Is there a place you think of when it's time for a romantic dinner out that you like to go?
1: We love the water and we love beautiful views. Mm-hmm. You mean a place that we,
0: that we... That's good. A place with a view, the water, and have, anything will do.
1: Just as long as we're together. We're not too picky.
0: There you but go. I'd
1: you have to be able to love the... In a, not a shoebox, but you know, in a space that's not elegant and beautiful doesn't give you all the things that you dream of. You mm-hmm. have to be able to really be with yourself and with others in that kind of space.
0: I love it. All right, last one of these. So who past or present would you most like to host at an intimate dinner party?
1: <sighs> Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That's my, I've met so many people. I'm that old, you know, at um, 76 next week, I've, I've, I've met most of the people were passing away. I, I, kn- I knew them all, most of them. I just wish. I wish that I had known Dr. King, that I had met him and could have just sat at his feet, really, and listened.
0: Yeah, to think of all that he accomplished and lost him at such a young age, how much more there was to do.
1: Yes. Yeah. Worn out he was, too, you know. But I'll tell you, uh, Miss Coretta shared with me who I did know and traveled with on occasion. But she shared something with me about him that really changed my life. She said, you know, he struggled as a student at at Morehouse. And i was saying, how could Dr. King have struggled as a student at Morehouse when he arrived at 15 years old? And she reminded me that they were sweeping young men out of uh, college and into the war. We're talking about World War uh, II. Mm -hmm. And so they um, emptied the high schools and sent some of those men who might have been juniors and seniors off to college early. And she said he was at best a C-minus student, at best a C student and often a C-minus student. I said, Dr. King, she said, yeah. But when he went off to Crozier to study theology and he learned about poverty in the world, that's when everything for him shifted. And you know what that said to me, and still does, Brad, even today, that anything that is known is knowable. Anything that you want to know and you discipline yourself enough to know, you can know. So there's no need to compare yourself to anyone else or feel that you're not up to speed. The question is, are you willing to do the work of knowing, of learning?
0: Mm. Mm. Being curious. Yeah. Yeah. So, Susan, let's let's jump in here. Um, first off, how are you? How, you look phenomenal, as always. I know you, you said you're coming in on your, your 76th year. It's impossible to believe looking at you. You look great. But how are you doing?
1: I'm doing okay. You know, people say they're okay when they're not. Because nobody really wants to know. You tell somebody, "Oh, I'm real depressed." They'll say, "Well, go get some help." <laughs> you know? But I'm doing fine. It's been a, you know, it's been a challenging two years for all of us. And anyone who says that it hasn't been challenging, it's probably not telling the truth. Right. And then you look at your life, and you look at, you know, in New York City, it's a walking city, as you know. And you know, looking at the hunger and homelessness and how people are struggling and suffering, I'm like, let me just give thanks the grace in my life and learn how to be content with this and really going within myself to see what this time has come to teach me. I think that's the question for me and I'm, I'm, I'm good.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: I wanted, I wanted maybe dig a little bit deeper into that because, you know, and, and I have to say, and I, I think I said this at the top, you know, just the sound of your voice. Anytime I've ever gotten you on the phone, you know, from the time I was young and, you know, through the years, when I first hear you answer the phone, there's just such a, a calm to your voice. It really is. It brings a, a kind of a peacefulness. Do people speak to you that way about your about the sound of your voice? Much not, I'm not even talking about the things that you say, just the way that you sound
1: all the time but i'm saying that doesn't mean that it's happening inside of me you know? <laughs> if i'm telling the truth i'm stunned when i hear it because i could be going through a thing and they're like oh you sound so peaceful so calm <laughs> i'm like i don't know it must be a bit of a i don't know but that's a- the
0: bridge over troubled waters <laughs>
1: Yeah, Yeah. not always the internal truth.
0: Well, let's I want to talk about that a little bit because of what we've all been going through this these last couple of years. It's just intensified and accelerated a lot of things that were already in the pipeline. But uh, the news became, you know, you couldn't turn away from it, but almost unwatchable at at times, too. And your your whole life, Susan, it seems, and and even intensified more lately has been about just giving to other people advice, spirituality, just guidance. How do you fortify yourself? How do you, and I know you've touched on it, but what, what do you do to make sh- to every day just kind of lift yourself up and get out of bed?
1: You know, the, the peace is really within. You know, we, we say that, we read it. I certainly have written it enough, time, enough times, but taking the time to just be still. In the stillness, that's when life Allah, Jehovah, Yahweh, God, whatever we call the divinity really speaks to us. But we're so used to just having noise around us. Sometimes the television and the radio are are on at the same time. We're tweeting and its phone is buzzing and ringing. And so we're like in perpetual motion when it's in the stillness that I find my place and my peace and the answers to what I'm looking for. That's that's really what I do. And I love baths. I love laying in bath water. I think that's like maybe a return to the womb in some way and just being still. You know what I found too, Brad? This never fails. Life is always longing to support us. What we do is we don't connect. We don't connect with the source of life. And if we would just stop worrying, and I'm talking to myself right now, and, and fretting and, and uh, is the gala gonna work? And just say, let me be led by the goodness in the world, by the creator of the world, by the creator of all, and submit to that, everything always, always works out in divine order. But it's remembering that's difficult because we don't often remember who we are, how we got here, and what we need to do to restore our peace. So I try. And books, you know, going back to certain readings and trying to remember that we're here on purpose, with a purpose. It's not forever. So just be still, learn what you're supposed to be doing today and do it.
0: Right, right. You know, I guess, too, as I'm thinking about, you know, what you're saying and listening to you, part of the challenge, I think, in that in, in trying to find that the peace and that stillness is, the drive and the ambition that we feel to, you know, get out in the world and compete and succeed, and is what I'm doing working. And as you mentioned, you know, is, is the National Cares, is the gala going to work? You know, there there is this kind of cycle of information that flows through our brains constantly. And it is hard to shut that off, but it is okay to sit still and do nothing for a few moments to kind of rest in that and that peace and let, let the rest of it catch up to you in a way, I guess.
1: That's right. That's exactly right. To just do nothing and allow. If we would just allow life to have its way with us, allow the creative energy, the divine source, you know, mm-hmm. this is no kind of esoteric, um, you know, information. We, we can't, you know, science can't even explain life, can't explain how we got here, can't explain consciousness. So we're more than we seem. We really are human and divine. And we learn about our humanness all the time, you know, when we hurt ourselves, when somebody hurts us, when we lose our way, when we're sad, that's the human side. And there's no escaping that. You know, life is fraught with challenges and you have joy and and you have, you know, sadness and you have losses and gains and triumphs and failures. All of that is in the mix of life. It's there's nothing you can do to avoid that. But what we don't learn about is the internal source, you know, the things that are within us that we can always rely on and how to connect with it. And it doesn't mean, you don't have to go to a mountaintop, you don't have to get into bath water, you don't need a mantra, a prayer, or anything to get in touch with your source. It's what you just said, silence, Mm
0: -hmm. sitting
1: in the stillness, doing nothing, and listening in and allowing
0: Good, good words, and it and it does take practice, like like anything else. And um, but I, I appreciate um, you know what what you what you have to say on on that in that regard, Susan. I want to take a, a step back here just for a couple of minutes, and and you know your your career has been so well covered. I don't want to spend you know too much time on that because I'm sure the folks that are listening to this program know well who you are. But still, just for context, I mean, you've stated your age, and you know that means that in the '60s you were coming of age. And, you know, in 1968, I mean, the sixties was a tumultuous decade, obviously And in 1968 alone, we lost Dr. King, Robert Kennedy. Um, the Vietnam war was raging. The, there were the student protests all over the place, uh, that summer, Tommy Smith and John Carlos bowed their heads in Mexico city and raised their gloves on the, on the podium. Music was incredible though. You had the Beatles with Hey Jude, uh, Otis Redding, Doc of the Bay, Jimmy Hendrix, line the Family Stone, The Fifth Dimension. I mean, what a rich period with so much going on, and here you come deciding to focus on fashion and beauty, right? As a as a twenty something year old. So what what inspired you in that in that way? What what made what got your attention about fashion and beauty?
1: Failing as an actress, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, you know, growing up in Harlem on 116th Street, down the block there was a theater called the, the Cosmo Theater. And that's what we did on Saturday after I finished working with my father in his store. He would let me go there. And I looked up on the screen one day, Brad, and I saw Dorothy Dandridge and Carmen Jones and lost my mind. I was a little girl. And I just said, oh, I want to be an actress. Had never been in a play, didn't know anything about acting, didn't study it, graduated from high school. And started studying acting, and then the parts started coming, not realizing that I really could write. So I wrote my own audition parts, you know, and I would audition for things and began getting work. I played Miss Barclay on As the World Turns. Listening is even old enough to remember As the World Turns. And, um, you know, the, the parts came, and then I found myself understudying the great actress, Paula Kelly in a three-character play on Broadway called The Dozens. Morgan Freeman, Al Freeman Jr., and Paula uh, Kelly. I could not get that whole part in my head. I I never had a great memory. And I remember saying, if this woman ever gets sick, there is no way I can step on that stage. This is in previews and rehearsals. And I was just, Lord have mercy, please. I don't know what I would do. The play closed. It was such an inane play. It closed on opening night. I was the only one <laughs> jumping for joy. And I remember saying, Lord, if you let me out of this one, I'll find my métier. And I know it's not this. And with that, I said, you know, I was married at the time to a man who had beauty salons. And I said, you know, I, there, was, there were no shades for black women. You know, our undertones, even if we're very fair, could be a yellowish undertone to sisters who were ebony. And I said, I'm going to do a line of cosmetics That really suited the range and they'll make them custom blended. So that led me to beauty school. And then I heard that Essence was looking for a beauty editor. I wasn't reading those magazines that were out there at the time. And I applied for it, you know, and confidence walking in there. I had more confidence then at 22, 23 than I do these days. Sometimes, you know, I walked in there looking like I thought a beauty editor should look. And I convinced I Lewis, who was the editor-in-chief, that if she gave me an opportunity, I would deliver the very best beauty pages that Essence could possibly have. And that's how I got my foot in the door.
0: Essence in those days, I mean, there were four founders, if I'm not mistaken, right? Ed Lewis, Clarence Smith. Jonathan
1: Blount. Jonathan Blount. And Collingsworth.
0: Right. So you, you go into a, a male dominated, I would assume, office environment. And, you know, I, I loved watching the show Mad Men. You know, I, I love that period of furniture and, you know, the mid-century modern. But it, was that the environment that you were walking in, like smoke filled Jack Daniels in the office and men you know, voicing their opinions? I mean, did you were you was, was that the environment that you walked into was it a little bit different?
1: Those four brothers were smart. They knew who was running the show they knew that it was women who had the perspective, who named the magazine Essence, and who could had to control the editorial content. And you know, Essence succeeded because it really was church and state as is stated in the magazine industry. You know, the, the, the church is the magazine, it's sacred. So the business side, stay away and don't try to tell the editors what to do because it's good for advertising. And it really worked. So Essence, always led was always led by what the readers needed and on the advertising side where there were men clarence smith primarily and women too basically they focused on bringing in the advertising dollars but they they stayed out of our hair
0: so susan how did you find your voice you know the in the spirit column was you know as i mentioned was was extremely popular but what what made you aware of the fact that the audience was responding, you know, to your words and to your vision for the magazine? What were your indications of that? How did you know you were on the right track?
1: You know, only sales will tell you that. And, I, and I'll tell you, when I, Ed Lewis, really took a huge chance on me. And we never mentioned the person who was between Marcia Anglesby and me. Marcia Anglesby created the foundation that I built upon and there was an editor before her. She was actually the, third, the fourth chief editor. One never got to publish a magazine. And then there was the first one, Ruth Ross. And then there was Ida Lewis. And then Marsha Gillespie was elevated to that position and held it for nine years. And then there was one between us with all the education that she needed, but didn't have the, the air that would be tuned to the hearts and minds of black women and what they needed. When he offered it to me, there was protest. Like, how are you going to give this to somebody who didn't even go to college? You know, she's a, a fashion and beauty editor? Please, you know. But he took a chance on me. And what I did was I I was more the reader, Brad, than any of the editors, who were all college graduates, some with advanced degrees. But I, by that time, I was a single mother, you know, struggling to raise Shauna, and very, very interested in what women were going through. And so... When it came time to my writing an editorial, I said, I have to write about what I know. I have to write about the path that I'm on. And it was really trying to find that spiritual center and my balance. So that's what gave birth to In the Spirit. And I surrounded myself with the smartest people I could find. And we responded to what readers were looking for. And in one issue, I wore them out with that first issue that was mine that I really encouraged and I won't say demanded, But, you know, got the art directors to redesign. So it was like a fresh face with be a winner was a big cover line on it, you know, and the magazine just kept growing from there. And then I went back to school. That was the hard thing. Going back to school as a as the editor in chief of the magazine.
0: Yeah, I I remember the the sisterhood of uh, sisters from Essence uh, that would come up to the cellar and and hang out from time to time. And it was just such a, a rich period of in in new york and uh, you just talk about finding the smartest people to work around you i just remember such brilliant women that uh, i got a chance to meet i'm curious susan the the iconic photograph of you i've never asked you this before so i really don't know the answer but there's this iconic photograph of you you shaved your head bald you turned to your right shoulder i think hoop earrings on um, the photographer i think his name is ken ramsey what, what's the story behind that photo
1: it's so funny, yeah, Ken Ramsey was actually my daughter's godfather, just happens to be sitting here, that anybody can hear. Uh. and we were in Jamaica, Sean and I, marriage is shaky, breaking up, and I'm running away to my friends, and Pat Ramsey, Ken Ramsey, my daughter's godparents, and I, we had gone to the beach that day, And I came back and, oh, man, I mean, my skin was black. And he said, oh, my God, you look so beautiful. Let me photograph you. I'm like, well, let me put my eyebrows on first, you know, put my little eyebrows and I think eyelashes, too. I mean, imagine he wanted a real natural photograph. And that's what happened. That's how that photograph, you know, was captured.
0: And where did it first appear?
1: I don't know that it appeared anywhere. I don't think it appeared anywhere. It might have appeared maybe. I don't think it was in the magazine. I never put it in the magazine. That's for sure. But, you know, in doctor's offices, I mean, I go into my doctor's office and I see Jamaicans. It was done in Jamaica, and I think Jamaican people loved it. But on the book, Posing Beauty by Deborah Willis, that's what really, I think, made the photograph kind of famous, you know, and maybe it was published in essence. I don't really recall.
0: But posters, I mean, I, I just remember a time where I would see it everywhere. It's beautiful, beautiful photo. Before we move on, I just, you know, I want to say, you know, for, for, The younger generation of successful African-Americans, entertainers, entrepreneurs, athletes, journalists, you know, there's a high probability that Essence magazine and you, Susan Taylor, had a place in their homes growing up. When you look back, Susan, as one of the few African American editors at the time, and even today. I mean, we you know we we saw some of the in twenty twenty some of the reckoning at various publications. Condé Nast and a Wind Tower caught a little flack. Bon Appetit fired Adam Rappaport, brought in an African American woman as their editor, um, Dawn Davis. What stands out to you about the publishing world, the media world, from your time at Essence as a as an African American editor?
1: Ooh, what a question. You know a number of things that racism is real because what we watched were the seven sister magazines. Those magazines are like Ladies' Home Journal, Good Housekeeping. You know the the food, you have uh, recipes and home decorating things. We saw advertising for beauty, especially going in those magazines, skincare and fashion, and certainly at the Condé Nast books. You know. And we couldn't get those ads. We could not get those ads. And I remember Ed Lewis, uh, our publisher, going to meet with a very well-known leader of a major, major cosmetics company saying, look, we have the audience. Your fragrance is the premier fragrance among black women. And you should be in Essence Magazine. His response was, we know that. But we believe that black women aspire to have things beyond their reach. And if we brought it directly to them, it might lose its allure. And... It might lose its currency with white women, our primary audience. I don't think Essence got an ad from that very well-known cosmetics company probably for the next maybe 12 or 15 years. That stands out. The other thing that stands out for me then and today is the importance of unity. You know, I think about what you and, and your dad, you know, what you all know, knew about the restaurant industry. And what we could do if we ever understood the importance of unity and aggregating our resources and standing together, you know, and building together. That's, the, I think, the primary thing for us to learn moving forward, that we really are, as the great Pulitzer Prize, first Pulitzer Prize, black woman who won a Pulitzer Prize wrote, we are each other's keeper. We are each other's harvest. We are each other's magnitude and bond. But we don't trust one another enough and don't work in harmony well enough together. And that's, I think that's our lesson to learn.
0: Good point. Uh, I'm going to I'm gonna bring Ambassador Shabazz in a little bit early um, because you have such a unique relationship with her. I want to give us a chance to kind of have a three-way conversation. And just before I do that, Susan, because on, on, you know, to the point that you just raised, and I know how I've felt this in the restaurant industry, and I'm curious if you see the... Effort for inclusion in, we'll call the mainstream, stream media publications, the the Condé Nast type publications, Vogue, L, what what, ha, what have you. Does the battle for inclusion in those publications by people of color come at the expense of black centric or black owned media?
1: Oh, absolutely. It it really does. And, you know, sadly, because of our not working in unison, in unity, the magazine industry has changed dramatically and magazines are struggling. There's none that is as popular as they were, say, 10, 15, and certainly 20, 30 years ago. But if what we have to do, and it starts with celebrities understanding, who's your best representative? You know, whenever I find an, an African-American celebrity who's represented by a black person, I'm like, bravo, bravo. You know, because what we do is we turn to people outside of our race to represent us. And sometimes we don't matter as much on that side of the great divide as we would to a black person who's now struggling to hold on to a business as a PR person. And then they're out of business. When you're a huge celebrity and people want you, you can have anybody representing you because they want you. And it really understanding that brings Lena Horne understood that. She was really, and I mean, when Essence came along, Lena Horne was not at the height of her career. She was coming back and doing things with Tony Bennett, and they were traveling the country. It was a great concert that they had. And she was the only person who we could turn to, one of the few, who had black representation. Everybody else was represented by somebody else. I think I mentioned to you that Marsha Gillespie never got to have, you know, the Supremes on the cover of Essence magazine, even though they were Motown celebrities because the folks making the decisions there didn't appreciate Essence because they weren't African-American. So there's not an appreciation of the audience, hence the the cosmetics person who didn't see the value in Essence and the audience that would put money in their pockets. And uh, so things fall apart when we don't understand what other cultures understand and how they work together and support one another. That's our lesson to learn. And finally, I want to say that that's what, Four centuries you know of being defiled and brutalized in many ways and certainly 250 years of enslavement it taught us to not trust one another to hate ourselves to hate our looks our hips our lips everything about us but this is a moment of renaissance another renaissance moment when we're rediscovering our beauty and our intelligence and this has happened to us before we have to get it right this time
0: well said and um Want to go a little bit further on that, but as we do, I want to bring Ambassador uh, Shabazz into the conversation. Because, you know, she and I have talked a bit about um, Susan, this this if we look at what we're what we're kind of referring to here is a bit of a relay, right? And to us, you're an icon. And there should be no one from our culture that you could not pick up the phone and get on the other end. And Ambassador Shabazz and I see our role as a generation just a little bit younger than you, part of our job is to make sure that the gatekeepers to those individuals who are now the LeBron James and and Tracy Ellis Rosses of the world, who have tremendous access, tremendous power, 10 million Twitter followers, in LeBron's case, probably a lot more. But it's our job to make sure that those gatekeepers and and the point that i made earlier about the fact that in every black household for the last 30 years susan taylor and essence would have a place that means lebron's mother was reading essence magazine his agent might not have any idea what essence magazine but his mom damn sure does so i'll i'll step aside and ambassador you know feel free jump in here say hello to uh you're a your dear friend, uh, Miss Taylor, but uh, so nice to, to have both you beautiful ladies here with me at the corner table. And
2: you're kind, certainly more than, than just a friend. Indeed, family, someone whom my mother loved as well and was so dedicated to and proud of. And, you know, one of the things, you know, Lady Taylor, is you always offer such an authentic eloquence of a soul in perpetual evolution. And then you share the honesty of those phases and insights With so many, and I'm listening to your conversation now, and I just want to say how thankful I am that we got you here, that and you said yes to the corner table talk, knowing how full your table is. And the wisdom that you've shared with that very calm voice that Mr. Johnson relayed and referenced is the calm flow that you've offered, the confidence that the welcoming of your nature for 40 years, Uh, you know, as long as generations know you, they're defined by your pace. And while you yourself were a young woman on a journey, you opened it up and enabled people to join you. And so I just I say thank you to that. You know, I was a riny, lanky, you know, uh, raw, no makeup wearing girl. And you put me on the cover twice. I mean, how? You know, no one else would have done that either. And in each case, it wasn't about a beauty cover. It was about a story. It's about an authentic self. And the power and the decisions that you made that impacted so many lives, you should not have to do another thing ever. And as Mr. Johnson just stated, there should be no task in the gifts that support the missions that you stand for to date, um, such as in the National Cares Mentoring uh, Movement, that should be an easy ask um, and not having to chase anyone down. And I think that's how we work as a culture, uh, to be able to know our value and our worth so that we don't sleep at the wheel. So just thank you.
1: You know, it's going to take time for that to happen. The distress that we suffered through the losses that we endured, they're epigenetic, they're intergenerational. You know, they, they are part of our DNA unacknowledged. And we pass on the the greatness, the resilience, because how we survive and how the three of us are here is totally amazing, you know, <laughs> that we are here, right? Given what the histories of families are. But that, those losses and the things that were so wounding, and destructive took place over such a long period of time. You asked about patience, Brett. So that's the challenge, to be patient with ourselves, to be patient with one another, and to be strategic. But it's so great to hear you younger ones really talk about a role that you see yourselves having to play. And that says that you're awake, and that's what this whole thing is really about. This time it should be a time
2: of awakening. Well, we're also beneficiaries of that baton. We're witnesses of that baton, unyielding stewardships of those batons. And as we get to this place, as parents and grandparents, and also being marginalized, experiencing who's not hearing or listening and realizing, wow, what beat have we not connected? There is a responsibility and a role. And so that people aren't leaving here. You said earlier, all the people that have passed in the last decade, you knew. And for the most part, so did I. And I feel their absence. They were such dynamic contributors of social culture, the foundations of that which we live by, and many don't even know their names. And so- (laughs) there, this is an opportune time. And young people, the Gen Zers remind me of those who were just older than me when I was younger. They're aching for answers. We just have to make sure that they're they're informed and that they're e- equipped and also that they regard the elders. That was the difference because when I was a kid, whether you agreed or not, the value of the elders was to be respected.
1: You know, I heard, um... Your Auntie Ruby, Ruby D, say something. I wasn't there. It was in Atlanta, but it was a you know video that I heard. And your Uncle Harry, Harry Belavonte, said something to me directly maybe a couple of months ago. He said, we, we didn't get it right. What did we do? What didn't we do right? That you all have to do this all over again, you know? And that was such a profound question. And I think that in, in many ways, it was my generation that dropped the baton Because the corporate doors opened. You know, Brad, your father was probably one of the first, if not the first, African-American to own a restaurant south of 110th Street. Mm -hmm. Black folks didn't have places we could go to in the Upper West Side or in in Midtown. And then you had restaurants both in, in Beverly Hills, I guess that was, or some part of Los Angeles, and, you know, here in New York City in Midtown on... Columbus Avenue in the in the 60s And not the nineteen sixties, but sixtieth at something Street. That that's and today we don't have any of those things. We don't have them.
0: You know, Susan, I want to um because you when we spoke the other day, I mean, you set the alarm bells ringing for me, and I think sometimes it takes that for us. There hasn't been a. a Call I think to galvanize around in in a long time for some reason I think maybe we've been lulled initially by corporate America as you said in the in the 70s those jobs opened up then the children Ambassador Shabazz and myself of that generation we got the benefits of private school and college and going right into the workforce so we didn't have a war to fight so the movement maybe kind of lost its way a little bit but if you would talk. About the national cares movement and some of the the, the alarming news that you shared with me about uh, about African American suicide among youth. Oof,
1: that is the yeah. most heavy. alarming news. That you know, death by suicide increased increased by forty seven percent among black boys, and fifty nine percent among black girls. Recently, for the first time in the nation's history, the suicide rate among African American children is greater than it is among any other cohort of children in the nation. Native American, Pacific Islanders, and white males used to lead that number. We didn't even talk about black child suicide. And now black child suicide is leading all other suicides among young people. And I mean, between 1991 and 2017, suicide attempts by black youngsters rose by a startling 80%, eight zero percent. The only group of children in the nation for whom suicide attempts and completion have risen. Poverty is linked to that, you know. But children of every class, young people of every class, have taken their lives. You can see the direct link between poverty, growing up in a... And now with media and social media, and you have access to knowing everything, young people, young African-Americans, and not only, but as young as five, are taking their lives. You... See all the goods and gifts that America has to offer, but they're not within your reach, you believe. Because your school, your family, they can't prepare you for that. The schools are under-resourced. They don't have teachers who have the capacity. The teachers are worn out, totally worn out. And parents, parents are struggling because they went to the same poverty school that you're in, in the same community. And now the communities are being gentrified and then our people are being scattered across the country. So it really is a very, very critical time. And the National Care's Mentoring Movement is really a clarion call to us, to able, stable people, to step up. Step up and say, we will not let you fall. To do for children who have nowhere else to turn. People have turned away from them. Poor children. People don't even want to hear about it. I'm glad that you're asking. And it's painful. It's hard work. But it's not the rough side of the mountain when you know your history what we come from please i'll take this i'm not on some plantation in 1815 or on a slave ship in the 1600s this we can do by linking arms and aims and making a commitment but it really does come back to i believe not i believe i know wellness harry belafonte who was one of our he was like the elder person who led us when we were creating a new way forward, healing what's hurting black America. He said so profoundly, you'll never be able to heal what's hurting your children until you attend to healing. What's hurting yourself, hurting you. That's it. So that's our work. Our work is really the national kids mentoring movement really began by recruiting mentors, training them, and then deploying them to where they need to be in low-performing schools where our children are reading, they're, they're putting them in high school and graduating them, reading at a second grade level. You know where they're going, to prison. Can't apply for a job reading at a second or third grade level and get it. And then we, we, I said, why is it more difficult to get able, stable black folk? Because when the call goes out for mentors, it's white women who are the first responders, and then white men, and then black women and black men. So I said, well, why is it so difficult to get us to step up as mentors? And, you know, Naeem Akbar, the great psychologist said, because racism has made us all crazy and black people are weary. You all know you have two cents and you have a whole family that needs a penny of the two cents or the whole two cents. And so we are strapped with, with, with stress. I'm not minimizing anybody else's stress, but ours troubles what others in society really are experiencing. So I said, okay. We have to create something that helps us as able, stable people who appear that way to really take charge of our health, our wellness, as our dear Brother Harry Belafonte said. We have to do that. So that's what our work is. It's really helping our mentors to find their grounding, to stay strong, to understand their history. This is why, you know, the Ambassador's family, she knows. I mean, I can look. I just want to get up and pick up Brother Malcolm's photograph. I don't have photographs around me i have a big old book here with my name with my picture on it but it's here because it's a coffee table book malcolm x is my hero and i love him his wisdom guides me and does marcus garvey i mean if marcus garvey could link up the entire black world in the teens and the 1920s with none of the tools that we have what prevents us from just organizing ourselves with a little bit of an agenda if we had an agenda we would not be fighting for the vote, for sustaining and having fair voting. You know, as we are right now, we're fighting for it because we have silos doing different things rather than we're saying that, you know, maybe the sororities and fraternities, your role should be to overwhelm with calls. You know, get the the senators and the congressional leaders and maybe the nonprofit leaders, you should be doing this. Black entrepreneurs, you should be doing this through the chambers of commerce. And maybe it's the young people. Young people, we need you on social media, and this is what you should be doing. We need assignments. That's what we need, assignments today.
2: You know, it's really interesting um, when Harry Belafonte had the, the gathering of elders and um, Ruby D got on the stage and said, I don't need another gathering, give me an assignment. I don't need another party. I don't need another event. I don't need another meeting. Give me an assignment. And that's what it is. I think we have to be clear about the assignment, the vision, and the outcome expected for those assignments. And when I think about when the National Cares Mentoring Movement was getting its legs moving and defining itself and outreaching, and the chapters started to grow. How many chapters exist now? How many... uh, Registrants, do you have now?
1: We're in 58 cities. You know, we have two in Los Angeles, right there in in one city. And gosh knows, here in New York City, we're in all the boroughs, every one of them. And over the last, since uh, 2006, when it was founded as Essence Cares after Katrina, you know, we have recruited 175,000 mentors and deployed them. We weren't keeping these mentors for ourselves, we were just the recruiting arm. Recruiting them for going into, sending them into schools, partnering with our partnering organizations in communities. So they were in schools, they were in the community organizations that were struggling for black mentors, and also detention centers where our children are being warehoused. And then when I I visited a school up in Broward County, and was one of our leaders there, South Florida Cares. And she was just complaining about the students and how difficult they were. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to be speaking in Miami. I'm going to come on up there and see what you're talking about. I stepped into that school and it changed my life. Seagull. It's a school for teen mothers. And there were some fathers there too. And what I witnessed when they were letting the young ones out of school, three o'clock or whatever time it was, I watched young women wrestling book bags, baby bags, Babies and car seats onto school buses. It took my breath away. I mean, I was 23 when I became a mother, and I was married. I had one child, and it overwhelmed me. I can't imagine being 13 or 14 or 15 and having multiple children, which many of them did, you know? So that's when we stepped into the programmatic work to create the consciousness shifting curricula, both for parents at the university, for parents we have in Atlanta. And then in now about twenty-seven cities, we are implementing wellness mentoring circles in classrooms and changing lives, in addition to the fifty-eight cities where we recruit mentors and send them to other mentoring organizations who need black mentors.
0: Oh, wow. You know, Susan, what I as I'm listening to you both and I'm thinking, you know, of the urgency and, and how can a society consider itself successful when a five-year-old looks at suicide as the best possible option. And this dichotomy of, I mean, I I think you would both agree that in turn, and and Susan, you alluded to it, you know, we're not in slave ships, we're not on a plantation, we're not, it's not the 60s. We have more cumulative wealth and influence than any time in history. I'm talking about the African-American culture. And yet we've got on the other end of the spectrum, Five-year-olds who think suicide is the best possible option. To me, national cares is the connective tissue. Right. That's what's. That's what needs to be in place to potentially bring those two worlds back together. And it's just. I mean, that that I'm just so moved by, you know, the reality of the situation, but the hopefulness that someone like you brings with with an organization like that. It's it's moving.
1: And you know what this this virus has done, it's taken its toll on everyone. I mean, it's the one thing that has unified the whole world. Nobody is you know, free of its threat. What is so amazing right now is to see the partnerships that are being formed. Do you know that the sororities and fraternities, African-American, they call themselves the divine nine, that they have never done a program together? I was stunned when I learned that. They'd never done one thing together. Until Katrina, the three or four national Baptist organizations had never done one thing together. And now we have, we call them community impact partners, sororities and fraternities. And we have the coalition of 100 black women, the links, the uh, psychologists, black association of psychologists. It's just amazing to see how this, this silver lining in all the suffering that's being endured. And we really are learning something about how to be who we are and how we need to be. And I'm really trying to pay keen attention because I want the suffering to end. And I think as we awaken and we learn the lessons that life is trying to teach us, that things will ease and get better, we are each other's keeper.
0: Ambassador, we're winding down, but I want to give the floor to you for a moment.
2: Well, we've talked about the the heavy lift and I remember 20, 25, 30 years ago, you and I used to talk about the responsibilities we would see, uh, not, not uh, just publicly, but even as our mother's daughters, the, the expectations and, and then to be our children's mothers. And the question was, you know, how do we even find the time to fortify and take the phone off the hook Say no for today, treat ourselves. And we struggled with that conversation and that outcome then. But I know we are all working. I'm listening to you year after year and, and the trips that you plan to take and the ways that you dedicate downtime when you have to. How do you pursue and decide when that is vital?
1: What I'm saying to myself is I don't want to have to get sick to do the right thing for me. And Pain is one thing. It's information. It's the way that life speaks to us. I mean, we're all going to leave here because something happened, you know, some illness or some accident. The body must have rest. The brain, we have a mutual friend, three of us know and love her to pieces. And I'd say six years ago, she was in here wearing me out, right in my living room, telling me this, that, and the other thing. And we need to do this with cares. And today she doesn't even know me when I go to see her in the nursing room and she's 10 years younger than me. And what she started saying was, I fried my brain. She would not stop. And that's, that's part of what I think so many of us are being, what, I don't wanna say guilty of, but we don't know when to stop. We don't do this, this is what I'm telling myself, so that I don't have anxiety about this gala, because I have it and I don't want it to overwhelm me. We're only instruments. We're vessels, and life, Allah, God, the Holy Spirit, beauty, whatever we call it, the universe does its work through us, the work of healing, the work of unity, the, the work of caring for the least of these. I want to be a vessel that life can use, and if we want to be vessels that life can use, we have to do the things that we know create healthy vessels, and that begins with what we put in our bodies. You know, the smoothie in the morning, which is like, I don't like, well, I'm not interested in the way it tastes so much as what I put in it, you know, low glycemic berries. So it's not like loading our bodies up with sugar in the morning, you know, and, and um, hemp seed, hemp seed and flax seed and a little bit of coconut butter for elimination and smoothing everything out and just really thinking about that exercise is important. The gym is right in this building downstairs. I haven't been there in about three days. I'm gonna go today based on this conversation. And it really is, finally, I wanna say it's you first. And that's what we have to tell ourselves every day. And to us, especially to black women, that's sacrilegious. To all women, you don't come first. Everybody comes before you. It's the way we're raised, we take care of everybody, and we neglect ourselves. You first. And then the family, you know, and then the work, and then the community, but it's you first. And we have to make that, here's what I love about life. It's never too late. It's never too late to begin again. Every day we have another opportunity to just say, I'm reset. You know, I'm going to do what I know I need to do for myself. I'm going to be a kinder and gentler person to myself. And I'm going to give the best that I have of myself to my family, my community, and to society.
0: You're talking a lot about self-preservation uh, there, and I think we can all, you know, use a, a, a healthy level of awareness about that. And Susan, you know, we've, we've kind of touched on this quite a bit, but I, I just want to close on a, on a kind of a broad question, and you can answer it any way that you like. And, you know, given the urgency of the work that you're doing, I mean, it just kind of brings it into sharper focus for me that we've got some challenges. But, you know, when you turn on the news when, or read wherever you, you get your news from, you know, we're facing a lot of challenges and existential threats. The planet, the you know, this politics and everywhere you look. Obviously, a democratic society is a, is an experiment, and there are going to be casualties along the way, right? And I'm I'm curious if you feel that we're on a path towards a, a more perfect union, um, and is and do you do you see when you look into the Susan Taylor crystal ball, is there a planetary healing? out there for us to have
1: amen to that yes i look for the divine hand not the news the news is scary but there's a divine hand in in everything and i think what the divine hand is saying what is it going to take for you to awaken but you see what's happening during this COVID moment there is an awakening people are awakening to their their needs there are people who are saying i'm never going back into an office again i'm going to work from home there are people saying, I don't need to live in expensive, you know, Atlanta or New York City or, you know, San Francisco or Los Angeles. I can live in some little part of North Carolina, have a job that, you know, takes care of me and my family and be happy. So I think we're, we're, we really are recalibrating what matters most mm-hmm. and what's important. And that this, you know, virus and now the, the extended Omicron Piece or the deeper one is sent for our awakening i believe that for our awakening to everything there is a purpose and the question is what that that's the question to ask whenever you're hurting whenever the planet is hurt what have you come to teach us what have you come to teach me that's rumi the great sufi mystic what have you come to teach me and We learn our lessons and we move on. And there's always a lesson to learn. I want to learn my lessons. Painful, though they may be, and just keep stepping.
0: Beautiful. Ambassador?
2: Well, I have nothing to say other than whenever she speaks, you feel the spirit from which she writes, thinks, shares, and cares. And um, I've been a long beneficiary of that. And it's certainly in this conversation is a reminder of the work we have ahead of us to make sure that the richness of that wisdom um, is passed on.
1: It's so amazing to hear that from you. One of the most eloquent people on the planet who speaks your, your, your elocution and delivery is poetry. So thank you for that.
0: And I have the unfortunate task of having to speak after her officer, which is another challenge, but I put up with it. And I'm, I'm just so grateful to have both of you ladies in my life. You're both magnificent. And uh, I'm really grateful, uh, Susan, that uh, I've known you for as long as I have an ambassador and same with you. And thank you, Susan, for taking the time today. Before we let you go, I want to make sure that we bring up the gala in February and to donate or more information um for the national cares mentoring it's it's caresmentoring.org correct correct all right well let's uh, our audience should be uh, very involved in this with uh, with Susan Taylor obviously you've you've learned a little bit more about it today but uh, it's it's so uh, i think one of the most worthy causes that uh, that is out there and she is one of the people that uh, as i said she's an icon to us and deserves our full support
1: i have mm-hmm. to say this yeah. about you we're giving one another compliments but knowing you as a a boy and seeing you grow into manhood and the choices that you have made, how you have, how you took care of your parents, the love that you give, the calm that you bring. And I mean, you're an Adonis. (laughs) People don't get to see you, but Google him. He's an (laughs) Adonis. And, you know, you've never, ever, ever been a braggart, Uh, or a person who made other people feel less than they are. You were always the, the, the healer, the greeter, the person who just made everybody feel welcome. It's been an honor and a joy to see you grow so beautifully into manhood. And you really are a beautiful human being. And that comes from someone. That's what, you know, your father would say that all the time. Howard Johnson, let us lift up his name. Introduce me to jazz. You know, he would just say that, He's never given us any trouble. Now, you know, my mother couldn't say that about me. My mother or <laughs> father. Definitely. I don't know about you, Ambassador Shabazz. Yeah, I think you gave him trouble. <laughs> you know, even as a, a little one. But not you, Brad. Beautiful. Thank you. That,
0: that's so meaningful. Thank you, Susan. I had I had great teachers, so I, I'm appreciative of that. So thank you again. It means means the world to me. Thank you. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson, produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson. Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a mean old lion media production.